0: So, Passover celebrates the emergence of the then Israelites from slavery. So that's a big celebration for people of the Jewish faith. And Easter is a celebration of Christ emerging from death and being resurrected. And in both instances, it's something different and special. One emerges from something that's akin to slavery or death, so something that's not very wonderful and maybe very ordinary. And for the Israelites, it was freedom, and for Jesus, it was resurrection out of death into a new life. So these Sunday mornings we've decided to be a kind of introduction to Buddhism and so we're doing a kind of introduction to basic Buddhism and one overarching way to look at Buddhism and their teachings in Tibetan Buddhism are called three principal aspects of the path and one of the principal aspects is can be titled emergence And one is um, understanding that things aren't quite the way they seem. And the other is compassion. And we're talking about things not being the way they seem on our Tuesday nights. And compassion we talk about a lot. And then there's emergence. And what is emergence? Emergence is a very, very important topic. It refers to really turning our lives You know, just as the Israelites emerged from slavery and Jesus emerged from death into something wonderful. In the story of Buddhism, I did the math in the car coming over, Buddha is said to have lived from 483 to 563 BC. So he's 26 years old, which puts it at about 537 BC, just in case you want to put it on your calendar and compare it to other things in the world. So about 537 BC, here's this completely isolated princeling named Siddhartha. And he decides to break out of his wealthy prison. So he's emerging in some ways. And he starts going on these tours of the city. And he in turn notices an old person, a sick person, and then a dead body. And to the prince who is only exposed to wealth and um, beauty his whole life, the presence of old age, sickness, and death are enormously distressing. And he wants to emerge from being subject to that. His kindly charioteer and his horsemen who accompanied him uh, was kind enough to inform him that, yes, all beings are subject to old age, all beings are subject to sickness, and all beings are subject to death. And the young prince, Gotama Siddhartha, wanted to become free of that. And so in those days, and it's still a tradition in India, you could shave your head and You could go out and um, carry a begging bowl. Sometimes they put on the clothing, uh, put on rags or put on clothing, the color of what convicts used to wear in in India. That's Saffron was the color that prisoners used to wear in India. And guess what? We still do that Uh, in this country. Sometimes you'll see prison work gangs, they're wearing saffron. So things don't change too much. And he thought, I'm going to figure this out. I want to become free of old age, sickness, and death. And so he wandered about for seven years studying and also practicing asceticism. And asceticism means a control of senses, control of everything, basically. Um, he would, they're enumerated in the early scriptures if you're interested in reading it, but, you know, he would do things where maybe he would start with a meal of, I don't know, several grains of rice, and then he would work his way down to even fewer until he was eating just one grain of rice. And, um, It's described that he became quite emaciated and in a way that then they describe it in a way that I think is kind of funny. Um, It speaks to a kind of Indian sense of humor. It's uh, Siddhartha says, So I became, you can see statues and paintings of this, where basically they portray the Buddha as just a skeleton. And he says, when I went to scratch my backbone, I was scratching my stomach. And when I went to scratch my stomach, I was scratching my backbone. So in essence, there was like nothing left between his belly and his backbone and just really bones. And, um... He had gotten to understand some things. In fact, he had learned some of the meditative traditions that were current in India, and and he had become quite successful in his meditation, but he didn't feel he was free yet. And um, then he famously gets some porridge given to him by a young lady who mistakes him for a tree deity. She's wanting to have a child, so she offers him some um, very classic in India, some milk and rice. Um, but again, the way they portray it is kind of Indian sense of humor. You know, they took she took the cow, the milk of however many cows, and then boiled it down, 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 and then boiled it down until like this was like the essence of milk and then put in the rice, and there were probably some raisins in it as well. So he has this little bit of porridge. I mean, you know, he'd only been eating like one grain of rice, so he he actually eats like a whole bowl of this stuff. And his friends who were hanging out with him were also uh, ascetics at the time. You know, they're all eating one grain of rice, and he eats like this much food. And they think like, whoa, this guy's gone to the dogs, Uh, and, you know, he's just living the life of luxury. So they abandon him. And uh, Buddha's in, at this point, a place called Gaya, outside of Gaya in India. And then he goes to under a tree, uh, just like the many trees that Mark is growing here nowadays, they're Bodhi trees. And he sits down and decides until he's, figures it out, he's not getting up. And uh, first there are all sorts of challenges, including challenges of the senses, and then challenges of uh, kind of violence. If you um, look at the movie Little Buddha, it's nicely portrayed in that movie. And Buddha had nothing, I mean, he really had nothing, just the clothes that he was wearing, maybe a begging bowl, and he needed to do what in India was called something to overcome these horrific forces of sensuality and violence that were trying to distress him and disturb him. So he um, he had been practicing for many, many lifetimes, and so he uh, touched the earth. He touches the earth as his witness to all the merit that he had accumulated. And by the power of that act of truth, might all of these phantasmagorical illusions disappear. And so truth was felt to have a very, very special kind of power probably in any culture actually, Uh, but this was considered an act of truth and calling the earth as his witness. I think there was said to be a kind of earthquake when he touched the earth, calling the earth as his witness to the merit, to the good that he'd accumulated and done throughout all of these lives that he's been practicing. And so then all of these visions dissipate and then he has some other visions which include seeing how beings are born and die based on karma and that, The actions that we do empower future rebirths, and he realizes that all of that is driven by the fuel of deep clinging and deep hatred, and that there is a way to become free of all of that and to achieve a state of peace, which in the tradition is called Nibbana or Nirvana. And he stays that in his realization and actually for a while he's in his realization and he's thinking, what I've realized is freedom in fact from all the troubles that I have considered, but I don't know if I can teach people, I don't know that they'll be interested. Some deities come and beseech Buddha out of kindness to teach for others and so then out of kindness he decides that he will teach people a path so i just wanted to maybe share with you the part of the first teaching attributed to gotama and just say some things about what he says because it's a kind of review of where he came from and then what he was teaching and relates to what we do here. You can find this on the internet. The person whose translations I'm favoring nowadays, his name is Thanissaro Bhikkhu. I think he's an English Thai monk who uh, trained in what's called the, the forest tradition. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at Varanasi, that's Benares, at the game refuge at Isipitana. So this, currently there's still a very nice park in Sarnath. There's a stupa, which is a reliquary, which was put up about 200 years after the Buddha died, which is still there. And so there's a nice park there. And so it's in this park that he dressed the group, the group of five monks. And these are the colleagues who thought he was really sloughing off when he took that bowl of rice. There are two, these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth, which two, that which is devoted to sensual pleasure with reference to sensual objects, base, vulgar, common, ignoble, unprofitable, and that which is devoted to self-affliction, painful, ignoble, unprofitable. Avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, another word for Buddha, producing vision, producing knowledge leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. So there's a lot right in that that I wanted to comment on. So, first of all, one who has gone forth, so. Buddha emerged from, Gotama emerged from his ordinary life. And anybody who's here on a Sunday, you have emerged. You've emerged from your ordinary life. I mean, we could be at the park. We could be at the football game, which they're no longer anymore. But, you know, we could be at some sports events. We could be at church. We could be in anything that many people would consider ordinary. You've elected to come here this morning. You've emerged from something ordinary. And that's special. And so you've emerged to be here. And the Buddha emerged from his life. And he saw himself. First, he had been immersed in a life which was filled with sensual pleasure. I mean, he was a king. I mean, he had everything. And yet, at a certain point, he realized things weren't what they optimally could be old age, sickness, and death were going to afflict him. And so he realized that on the one hand, just being immersed in sensuality was not going to get him anywhere. But there was another thing that he wanted to avoid as well, and that which was self-affliction, anything that is devoted to self-affliction And so, you know, very shortly we will be doing some meditation. And there are, in a way, two levels to meditation. One is meditation in its introductory levels can just calm us down. And it's very, very useful as a method for calming us down and also giving us a little perspective so that we don't get lost in our impulses, but we actually have some opportunity to make a choice about things that are arising in our experience. We are aware of things coming into our feelings, into our mind, and we have a moment in which we can pause. And in a deeper level, meditation allows us to cultivate wisdom, a wisdom that begins to see something about our true nature, a sort of a spacious wisdom that is sky-like and compassionate and open and not reactive and not clinging and not attached to things. So meditation in our practice first can do something to allow us to feel calmer and less reactive, and then ultimately it can lead us to a sense of deep, spacious wisdom. But on the way to that, we're wondering about what kind of path we should cultivate. And, you know, one path might be very, very, we might think that in order to feel better, in order to understand things, we just need to be really just carpe diem, seize the day, eat, drink, and be merry. And at least Gautama thought, in his own experience, that didn't really pan out. But there's another path which is devoted to self-affliction. And I just want to say a little bit about that for those of you who are here maybe newly and those of you who are here for a long time. and, and, And that is that it's quite easy for people to get involved in spirituality. And the initial impulse is Really, we're looking for something to ease our mind, to ease us out of suffering, ultimately to ease us out of the pain of birth, old age, sickness, and death. These are wonderful goals. And part of what animates us into a life of suffering is some kind of deep, tight, clinging, and or deep, tight resentments and hatred. And it's maybe almost necessary stage of development in practice that when people get involved with practice, sometimes their ordinary mode of relating to things transfers over to their spiritual practice and there's a like a tightness and a resentment, but in what happens in the spiritual path is it can be sometimes oriented towards others, so you get people who are very, very involved with partisanship and sectarianism in religious life, but also towards oneself, that one is very, very impatient with oneself, and one gets very, very... Attached to a particular goal and one also gets very, very um, impatient to the point sometimes of almost self-despising with respect to the goals that you set for yourself spiritually. Even if it's something like, I want to meditate 10 minutes a day, sometimes people can get very, very... um, impatient with themselves if they forget to meditate or they don't do quite 10 minutes. And so I think just in the beginning part of what Gotama tells us about his own experience that he realized he wanted to practice a middle way that was between sensual enjoyment and self-affliction. There's something very, very important to see as a challenge for all of us when we're practicing spirituality, and that is not to afflict ourselves. Um, You know, there may be things that we give up, there may be tasks that we undertake, Uh, there may be even some hardships that we willfully undergo that's okay, I think it's the piece that I would want to flag for everyone is, and it's very, very common to hear about when we work with students is to, it's not that we're trying hard, it's that we are hard on ourselves. And I think that's an important thing to distinguish. It's okay to make effort. And I think just coming here on a Sunday morning is effort. It's good to make effort, but it's not productive to be hard on oneself. And so the very, very kind of razor's edge that we all need to work when we're engaged in a spiritual path, even if it's to come here to practice meditation, is to be able to make effort, but to excise the self-affliction aspect that we may be used to in terms of motivating ourselves And, you know, you may even need to think about that for quite a bit to recognize that there is a difference between making effort and pummeling yourself. But it's really, really important to distinguish between self-pummeling and doing. And many, many of of us may only get things done when we self-pummel. But I want to encourage everybody to challenge themselves to look at whether they can do things without the kind of inner critical voice um, that is very, very negative towards oneself. And that is then a middle path, which is what Gautama taught when he emerged from his ordinary, day-to-day kind of existence, and ultimately became enlightened. If you enjoyed this teaching, please visit our website, donmountain.org to subscribe to this course and find other great Dharma offerings. May all beings always have happiness in its causes. May all beings always be free of pain in its causes.